passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I don't know about you guys, but uh, we try to keep up on what's going on in the, the war with the Ukrainians and the Russians, and it's just, it's hard. It's hard to watch, and it's actually sort of confusing. Now, I got these statistics wrong on first service, so that shows you how confusing it is. Now, is it correct, so you guys can help me out, that uh, NATO says that Russia has lost, what is it, between 7,000 or 15,000 people have died? Uh, no, that's then you go over and you look at the Russian statistics and their most recent statistic, which it is two weeks old, so they've lost 500. So you start to wonder, like, who's telling the truth? There's a lot of difficulty to find the truth, especially on the internet. You can never find the truth out there anyway on the internet. Now this is really confusing. And at first when the war started, it was portrayed to us in the media as complete, pure Russian aggression and expansion. Now, information is starting to come out that it may not just be that simple. Information about uh, bio-laboratories and chemical weapons and biological weapons, and then all of a sudden, more information about this whole Nazis in the Ukraine, and, well, it's really complex. Sometimes you wonder exactly, like, who is really the true bad guy and who is really the true good guy? It's just not that clear-cut sometimes anymore even though it's all bad and all wrong. War is that way. It can often be difficult to figure out like, who's right and who's wrong and what's going on. Today, we're going to go and we're going to look at a war, a war that's not taking place right now, but a war that took place 3,000 years ago. And in that war, there is truly a bad guy, and there is truly a good guy, and we know what side God is actually on. Now, if you're new, my name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors, and it's great to have you. As a church, we are working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, and today we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And let me just take a moment to get you up to speed with what's been happening in this book before we dive right into 1 Samuel 11 and look at that chapter, which is about a war. We've seen that God's people have really rejected God as their king. In fact, they've asked old Samuel, oh, please give us a, a human king right now. We'd rather have a human king so we could be just like the other nations rather than to have God as our king. And beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 8, it was the story of how God began revealing this king. This king that God chose is a man named Saul. He's tall. He's good-looking. He's sort of a, a rural farming kind of guy. And he's not necessarily that outspoken. He's sort of quiet, a little bit more reclusive. And God ordered events to bring Saul to Samuel. Samuel anointed Saul as king, we saw. And then um, God gave Saul three confirmatory signs that he was indeed to be the king. And God's Holy Spirit rushed upon him. And what he was supposed to do, we saw, was he's supposed to attack the Philistines at Gibeth Elohim, a Philistine garrison of soldiers. He's supposed to rise up and get a move on it. But what did Saul do? Absolutely nothing. In fact, uh, when his uncle came up to him and asked him, you know, hey, you met with Saul, Samuel. What did he tell you? What's going on? And 
he just said, oh, nothing. He hid his kingship. And he essentially went back home and didn't tell anybody about it. Then last week we saw that there was sort of a second anointing of Saul as king. Except this time, Samuel's going to do it in such a way that Saul couldn't hide it. Samuel gathered everybody at Mizpah, and then they used sort of a lottery system. And we learned last week that, by the way, there is nothing that's truly random. God is in control of all things, even random events. And guess who won the lottery that revealed that Saul was indeed king? Saul won the lottery. But the funny part was Saul knew that was going to happen. So Saul was not standing there. He was actually hiding among the baggage. So God actually had to tell the people where to find him after he was anointed as king. Not what you would call your fearless leader. After Saul was anointed king and everyone sort of celebrated and affirmed him as king, um, then everybody went home. But we learned last week in the closing parts of chapter 10 that not everybody was really thrilled to have Saul as their king. There was a group of people who said, how can somebody like this save us? Baggage boy? Not the fearless leader I was hoping for. The guy who sort of does nothing, who just hides. This is not the kind of person we need. So the nation is a little bit divided about him. Then Saul was home. He went back to his farming, reclusive lifestyle. Didn't do any kingly thing. Didn't get rid of the Philistines like he's supposed to. Now, between the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11 that we find ourselves, a period of time has passed. Uh, I don't know if it was weeks. It was months. Could have been even longer than that. Nothing has happened. And people are starting to wonder. Maybe the uh, critics of Saul are right. How can someone like this lead us? Well, I'll tell you, what happens today is everything changes. Saul finally steps to the plate. What does that? Where does it come from? Let's turn to the text in 1 Samuel chapter 11 and find out. We begin here with this. There was a crisis in Jabeth-Gilead. Now Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabeth-Gilead. So far in 1 Samuel, we've only been talking about the Philistines. The Philistines are the enemies of the Israelites. If you remember this geographically, and I'll show this to you in a map in a moment, the Philistines were located on the coast. They were located to the west of Israel. They were a seafaring people who had come in, who had, who had come and landed on the coast, and had built up uh, you know, five cities, and they would attack Israel from that side. Here we are introduced to a, another enemy of the Israelites. Instead of coming from the west side by the sea, these are the Ammonites, and they are coming from the east side. Now, the Israelites and the Ammonites, you may not realize this, are actually sort of connected to one another. They're related to one another, even though at this time they're vicious enemies of one another. So, well, how do they have a relation? Remember back in the book of Genesis, you had Abraham who was on his way to the promised land and he had his nephew with him. Remember what his name? Anybody remember? Lot. He had Lot with him 
And there was a time where Lot and Abraham, their herds and their flocks grew so big they decided to split a little bit, put some more distance between them. And Lot went over and lived in the area of the cities of the valley, Sodom and Gomorrah. A really nice looking place, but a bad neighborhood to be in. In fact, eventually, God decided that he was going to get rid of the cities of the valley, rain down fire and sulfur on them. God was super gracious and kind and sent angels in human form to Lot and said, hey, Lot, you got to get out of here. We're going to rain down fire and sulfur in the city in the morning. So Lot, his wife, and his two daughters escaped from the city. Except Lot's wife, you remember what did she do? Looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. And Lot, unfortunately, at that moment, became a single man. Now, what happened is eventually Lot and his two daughters found themselves really living together and living alone. And his daughters were growing older, and there was no men for them to marry. And so they decided to enter into an incestuous relationship, or an incestuous, I'll leave it at that, relationship with their father, so they could conceive a child. The one daughter conceived a son, and his name was Moab, and he became the father of the Moabites. The other daughter conceived a son, and his name was Ben-Ami. He became the father of the Ammonites. So that's where the Moabites and the Ammonites come from. They're actually from Lot's side of the family. The Israelites um, pretty much don't have tons of problem with the, Am- with the Ammonites until they were coming out of Egypt. Now let me show you what happened at that time. I put these notes in your bulletin. Oh, excuse me, one second. Go ahead and put that map up there. Sorry about that. I missed my map. This shows you where the Ammonites are located at. This shows you where Jabeth Gilead is at, where they're going, where they attack. It shows you the Jordan River that sort of divides everything. Thanks. Let's go back to the text. Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 4. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Uh, Balaam and all that stuff took place about 250 years before what we are looking at here in the text today. But there's been more recent hostility between the Ammonites and the Israelites during the period of the judges going about 100, 150 years back in that area. Uh, the Ammonites had risen up and begun to attack the Israelites coming off on that from the east coast in. And then God, as he did during the period of Judges, raised up a judge to defend his people. That judge's name was Jephthah. And Jephthah went and took back from the Ammonites 20 of the cities that they had stolen from the Israelites. Major defeat for the Ammonites. Since then, the Ammonites have been licking their wounds. But now, they've risen up again, and they're coming to attack the Israelites. This is what they are doing in the text here. And we continue in the rest of verse 1. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. This verse doesn't sound very significant, but it actually is. The men of Jabesh Gilead, they don't even bother trying to fight this guy. 
they're trying to avoid fighting with him at old, all costs. They want to make a peace treaty with this old enemy. Um, but it's actually more complicated than that. They're not just trying to make a peace treaty with him. But by making this peace treaty, they're offering to let him be their king. We will serve you. Now at this point, all of a sudden if you start to chew on that a little bit in your mind, there's a number of surprises that are here. In the recent chapters, wasn't Israel already asking for a king? Didn't God just give them a king? And they wanted a king that would save them from their enemies. Now they have a king that would save them from their enemies, but nobody believes in him. Because what has he done so far? Nothing, as Jim says, zero. So this is a massive no-confidence vote by the people of Jabesh-Gilead against King Saul. They don't believe he will do anything, so they will just simply surrender to Nahash the Ammonite. We don't, they don't think baggage boy will be able to save them. Now, there's a couple extra additional details that you don't find in your biblical text that I'd like to bring to your attention. Are any of you familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls? Have you at least heard about them? A couple of you heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Here's what's significant about them. They are the oldest copies of the Old Testament that we have. And the neat part about them is when you compare the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are about a thousand years earlier than the copies that we had in previous existence, we find that the biblical text, the Old Testament text, really that we have in our possession prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls hadn't changed. So it was pretty faithful stuff. There is one scroll that was found in cave four of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it contains uh, part of the text of the book of 1 Samuel that we're studying. And just, just one scroll, the um, copyist actually added sort of a little commentary in that scroll at this point to give us a little bit more information. Now you say, well, I don't see anything in my English Bibles about that, and the reason is, is very clear that was not part of the original biblical text. It's only found in one scroll in all of existence. However, uh, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian and writing from the first century, mentions this particular comment by this scribe, and he believes it was historically accurate, though he doesn't see it as biblically written by God. It was sort of a comment added in. And here is what it is. I put it in your outline for you. It gives us a little bit more background. Now, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, was oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites severely, and he was boring out every right eye, allowing no one to save Israel. There was no one left among the Israelites across the Jordan River whose right eye Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had not bored out. 7,000 men had escaped from the power of the Ammonites, however, and had come to Jabesh-Gilead. So if this is true, Nahash has already taken over all of the other cities to the east of the Jordan River. 
He's already gouged out the right eye of all the cities of the people, all the people in the cities that he's conquered. Jabesh Gilead is the last one. That is what's going on here. It is the last stand for Israel's territory east of the Jordan. Yet, rather than fight against this vicious evil oppressor, Nahash, these people are so terrified, they just agree to offer to make a treaty with him and let him be their king. Don't even bother to call on Saul, who actually is their king, who's been given to them to save them from people like this. Let's look at how Nahash responds. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, Well, on this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Sure, I'll make a treaty with you, but everybody, everybody in your city, no matter if they're a man or a woman, if they're a child or an old man, I am going to take out their right eye. You will be Cyclops City. And by the way, apparently, if that comment from the Dead Sea Scrolls is actually true, this is a habit for this guy. It's his way of marking out those that he has conquered, those that he is ruling over. They only have one eye on their face. Now, why would he use this particular technique? Uh, Josephus writes about this in his commentary on this. He says that one of the reasons that he would do this is it could made those people he conquered very difficult for them to defend themselves in war because the way shields worked in that days, you would line up in a line and you'd interlock the shields and you typically fight with your right eye having the left eye behind the shield. And if people didn't have a right eye, it was really difficult for people to fight to defend themselves. But while that may be Josephus' explanation, the Bible gives us a really specific explanation. Why was he taking out the right eyes of everyone's? Humiliation. To humiliate the people that he conquered. Imagine that. Your family. Your children. Everyone you know. Everyone you love, including yourself, having your right eye torn out of your face. It was a lasting psychological humiliation on the people he conquered. And it left a feeling of terror for anyone else who would ever go up against him. Do not lose to him because if you did live, this is what you'd be like for the rest of your life. Now, it continues. The elders of Jabesh said to him, well, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there's no one to save us, we'll give ourselves up to you. In some ways, this sounds sort of pathetic. These guys don't even bother getting on their knees, repenting of their sin, calling out to God. You don't see them wanting to call on Saul, who's been given to them by God to save them. They just sort of keep thinking Saul's not going to be able to do anything. They have no confidence in him whatsoever. So in a last-ditch effort, they propose to send messengers throughout all of Israel, hoping that maybe, maybe, just maybe, somebody will come and save them. If they don't, no one comes, 
they offer to give themselves up and to plead for mercy, even though they know how things will end. Now here is where the story starts to turn. An unexpected savior came from Gibeah. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. The author of 1 Samuel doesn't tell us what happened as these messengers went to all the other cities around Israel. It skips all that, just directly jumps here to Saul's home city and says, this is what happened. Those people were told about the problem for the people of the Jabesh of, Jabesh of Gilead, and they all began weeping. No, nobody at that point, notice, went to find Saul. The messengers didn't go looking for Saul. They just completely ignore Saul because they don't believe in Saul. There's another interesting connection here that many of us probably will miss. And that is that there's actually a familial connection between Gibeah in the, the south and Jabesh Gilead in the northeast of Israel. What happened, if you go back in the book of Judges, is there was a period of bloody civil war. I won't tell you all the details what led up to that, but as a result, almost all of the tribe of Benjamin had been wiped out, except for 600 men. The rest of the tribes of Israel stopped the civil war so they wouldn't completely wipe out a tribe of, the tribe of Benjamin where only 600 were left. And they realized that um, they needed to find wives for these 600 men so the tribe of Benjamin would actually be able to continue. But the problem was that every single Israelite had made a promise that they would not give their daughters to Benjamite men. So they didn't know what to do. What they began to do is look around, and they realized that no one from Jabesh Gilead had sent people to this civil war. And so what they decided to do was they went to Jabesh Gilead and took 600 virgin women and gave them to these 600 Benjamite men so the tribe would be able to continue. The reason I say this is so you realize that in this point in the text, in Gibeah, where Saul lives, there is a literal biological connection between them and Jabesh Gilead, between Gibeah and Jabesh Gilead, because a bunch of people's grandmothers actually came from Jabesh Gilead. So this is one of the reasons they're weeping, weeping so incredibly passionately. Now, um, let's jump to the next section. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, now what's wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. Uh, Saul, not acting very kingly at this point. He's acting like a farmer at this point because that's what his background is. Doesn't have a tractor, he has some oxen. So he's going out and he's plowing the fields. But notice, nobody runs up to him and tells him the news. Oh, King Saul, we need your help. Everybody sort of ignores him. He needs to ask them why everybody is so upset and why they're weeping. You can see this is a continual no vote of confidence in Saul. Even though he's king, 
we don't believe he's going to be able to do anything. And right here is where it's all about to change. It's not going to change because Saul decides to change. It's not going to change because the people decide to change. It's going to change because Saul, because God and his Holy Spirit are going to enter this situation and God and his Holy Spirit are going to change a man. That is the only way true and lasting change takes place in any of us when it comes from God himself. Let's see what happens. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. Incidentally, if you've been with us, you know this is not the first time that the Spirit of God has rushed upon Saul. Remember the first time? It was after Samuel anointed him. He was given those three confirmatory signs. And after the last sign, the Spirit of God rushed on him, but he didn't do anything about it. Well, what is this? This is another time the Spirit of God rushes on him. Maybe we could call this a Holy Spirit booster shot. I mean, that's sort of what happens here. Holy Spirit rushes on him, and it completely changes him. It takes a man who was sort of cowardly, timid, and reclusive, and changes him in, into a man that is courageous, who takes initiative, and who is a strong leader. At last, Saul, who's been called to lead, who's been equipped to lead, actually steps to the plate and leads here. This chapter, many scholars believe, is Saul's finest hour. And let me say this very clearly. What happens from this point forward is not because Saul has all these natural gifts, is not because Saul is a military genius, is not because Saul is a natural leader. Everything that happens from this point forward is because God's Holy Spirit rushed into his life and made him into a different person, equipping him to do what he was not naturally gifted and inclined to do. Now what happens here is not because Saul is such a naturally gifted man, he's unfit for the job. That has been abundantly clear up to this point. Nobody believes him. Nobody trusts him and is following him. But the Holy Spirit changes everything. And here's the reason I want you to point this out. At the end of this day, when victory comes to the nation, no one looks and no one has, should be able to look and say, this is all because Saul is such a genius. God gets all the credit. God gets all the glory. Because that is where the change came from. So here's what happens. Verse 7. And he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people. And they came out as one man. Well, first the messengers went out looking for help. They couldn't get help from anybody. Now, Saul sends them out and says, you are coming to help. That or all of your oxen turn into hamburger. Those are your options. 
And the same Holy Spirit that is now uh, changing and equipping Saul to be the leader for the day actually works on all the people. And you notice the dread of the Lord falls upon them and the people decide to follow Saul. There's no division among the people. They are all united behind them. It says they come together as one man. So the Holy Spirit creates the leader and the Holy Spirit actually creates unified followers. You notice that? Now we get to rescue. The rescue came from Bezek. Then he mustered them at Bezek. And the people of Israel were about 300,000. And the men of Judah, 30,000. Let me show you where Bezek is. Go ahead and put that map up. So Gibeah is down there to, uh, on the southwest. I have it circled. Remember, Jabesh Gilead is up in the northeast. Bezek is just right across the Jordan River, about 20 miles apart from Jabesh Gilead. So that's where they muster. That's where everyone gathers. Now, is this literally 330,000 people that gather? It's quite possible. I don't see why not. Some scholars point out that the Hebrew word for thousand can also be used on occasions to refer to military units of 50 to 100 men. Well, even if that was true, you still have, what, 15 to 33,000 people gathering? A lot of people come. And I personally think it's like 330,000. That's my personal belief in what it is. I think there's adequate textual evidence to support that. And the author also points out that people come from Judah as well as Israel. All over, both the northern and southern kingdom, everybody unites to come to fight for Jabesh Gilead. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. I think that is an understatement. We are going to keep our eyes. This is a pretty good deal. Um, what this is going to talk about is that 20-mile distance from Bezek to Jabesh Gilead, uh, Saul and the army are going to make that crossing during the night across the Jordan River, and they're going to come up and they're going to have a surprise attack in the morning on the Ammonites that are at Jabesh Gilead. Now, I love the way the people of Jabesh Gilead respond to the Ammonites. It says in verse 10, Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Oh, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. So the Ammonites are thinking, this is great. Tomorrow the Israelites come out to us and we get to take a whole bunch of eyeballs out. That's what we're looking for. But the Hebrew, the way this is worded, is like Hebrew humor. Literally, it doesn't mean we will give ourselves up to you. The literal translation is tomorrow we will come out to you. And then you can do whatever you want to us. Like, we're not telling you that when we come out, it's because there's an army behind us. You can do whatever you want, but it's going to be, you can be running for your life. Sort of a little Hebrew humor in that one. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of day. And those who survived were scattered. 
so that no two of them were left together. The morning watch is literally from the hours of 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. So this happened to be a super, super early attack when everybody was probably still in bed, when everybody was still asleep. And Saul was using some smart military techniques. He didn't just attack from one side. He divided his soldiers up into three groups, so they attacked from three different sides. Go ahead and put that map up so you can see what they, where they would have come. The idea is he encircles them so nobody can escape from them, and so they just completely defeat them. I love the way it says, so there's no two of them left together. That's essentially the chapter. But there's one major application point that this chapter makes and that I want to drive home. And I put it in your outlines because I wanted to make sure it was clear and you could always take it with you. It's this. The Holy Spirit changes lives. The victory came not because Saul was a naturally gifted leader or a military genius. It's abundantly obvious up to this point he was a shy farmer. What changed was the Holy Spirit empowered him and gifted him to accomplish the job God gave him to do. Israel was saved not because, as I said, they had a king, but because the Holy Spirit had empowered, led, guided, and directed that king. It was not having the office of the king that made the difference. It was God's Holy Spirit on the king that made the difference. Saul, as I've said before, is a naturally inept leader, and the text has told us about that. Everybody knows that. This way, when the Holy Spirit empowers him, leads him and guides him, and changes him into a different man, at the end of the day, God gets all the credit not Saul. And the same is true for us today. When we become a Christian, the Bible says very clearly that God sends his Holy Spirit into our life. And God's Holy Spirit begins to change us. God's Holy Spirit makes us into a new person, a completely different person. Some of you became Christians uh, later in life, and you have very clear memories of your B.C. period, before Christ life. You remember what your life was like. You remember what your desires were. You remember how you lived. And then Jesus came into your life. Then you trusted in Christ to save you, and the Holy Spirit came into you. In first, Second Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, God makes him into a completely new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And you know how God has given you different desires, different abilities, different gifts. Some of you are finding yourselves doing things you would have never dreamed you would have done. But the Holy Spirit changed you. The Holy Spirit empowered you. The Holy Spirit and gifted you. And the best part about this, if we were to ask you, what made the change? You wouldn't say, oh, I did it. You would say, God did it. He's the one that gets all the glory. It's exactly the way it should be. This is the application point under this. The Holy Spirit empowers the under 
underqualified. Who are some of the underqualified? Saul, we just looked at him. The apostles, they're the leaders of the church, but weren't a bunch of them like fishermen, ordinary, blue-collar workers, yet the Holy Spirit changed them? I like this from Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. God had changed their hearts and lives, and he equipped the underqualified. But I think it also works in reverse direction. See, there's some of us that aren't underqualified. Some of us are very gifted leaders. Some of us are very gifted academically. Others of us are very gifted athletically. You say, well, I don't necessarily need God to equip me. I, I'm naturally gifted. I can do a lot of those things. But here's the problem when you have people that are gifted and qualified. So quickly they fall into a different sin, the sin called pride, the sin called self-absorption, where all the credit and all the glory goes right to themselves. But you know what happens when God gets a hold of a gifted person, a qualified person, and the Holy Spirit comes into their life, that qualified person's ego deflates, goes down. All of a sudden, they become a man or a woman of incredible humility. They become a man or a woman of kindness, compassion, gentleness, and care. Because the Holy Spirit has changed their life, touched their heart, made them into somebody they wouldn't naturally be to call them and equip them that way. So this is the other side of the equation. Why the Holy Spirit we see, you know, allows the, equips the underqualified. The Holy Spirit brings humility and compassion to the overqualified. That's how he changes us. Now I'm going to end at the message about, uh, more about the Holy Spirit. Before we do that, let's just finish out the text briefly. The kingdom renewed. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Now it's sort of obvious to everyone. Boy, Saul is exactly the kind of leader we want. He's exactly the kind of leader we need. He can certainly save us from our enemies. Look what he did with the Ammonites, the guys who gouge out eyes. So who doesn't like Saul? We're going to get rid of them. Now here is where I think it's just, this is Saul's finest hour. Not only is it Saul's finest hour militarily, where you see the Holy Spirit equipping him for leadership, but Saul gives God the credit in all of this because he realizes it wasn't because of his natural gifts and his natural abilities that this victory came. That's why it's his finest hour. Look how Saul responds. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. I didn't do it, folks. Don't credit me. God is the one who brought the victory for his people. See why this is Saul's finest hour? Equipped and used by God? 
yet also incredibly humble before God. Then Samuel said to the people, Well, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Well, why Gilgal and where is that place? Let me show you the map. Jabesh Gilead is up there in the north. Gilgal is actually down in the south on the other side of the Jordan River. Why make this long trip to that place to have a celebration party for the victory? When Joshua brought um, the people into the promised land, after they you know, made the, the long trek, after they'd conquered, uh, beat the Egyptians through God who, who had done that, brought them into the promised land, the people landed at Gilgal and there actually celebrated the fact that God had beat the Egyptians and successfully brought them to the promised land. In Gilgal, there was actually monuments erected to them at that point. So they would remember those things. Samuel says, let's go back to Gilgal where we celebrated generations ago how God faithfully destroyed the Egyptians who are our enemies and celebrate again how God faithfully destroyed the Ammonites who were our enemies. That God is faithful once again. And also, he says, while there, we need to renew the kingdom. That's two parts to that. Renewing the kingdom is obviously reaffirming Saul as the king. Remember at Mizpah last week, it was not really unanimous. Even though everyone, you know, celebrated Saul as king, there were some people who were saying, how could this person lead us? Now they're going to reaffirm him. But also the commentators like to point out that renewing the kingdom at this point is not just affirming Saul as king, but it's actually affirming the fact that it was God who gave them the victory, not the king. It's their repenting. They're renewing their relationship with God. And you go to the final verse, that's exactly what you find. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord. And this time it sticks. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So here's the one application point of the chapter. The Holy Spirit is essential for spiritual leadership. Saul's leadership abilities did not come from his natural gifts. It was when the Holy Spirit came upon him that he was transformed into the leader the nation desperately needed. It is only when I am living in step with the Holy Spirit that I will become the man or the woman that God wants me to be. Just as Saul needed the Holy Spirit to transform him and give him the abilities to do what he wouldn't normally be able to do, we need the Holy Spirit in our life today to lead us, guide us, and transform us. And you say, well, how do I get that? Four simple points here at the end about what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. How do I rely on the Holy Spirit to guide me today? Number one, you need to become a Christian. The Bible says this, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When anyone trusts in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into their life and begins working in them, making them into a new person. Number two, make regular time to read the Bible 
asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you through God's word. Jesus says this in John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. When we read God's words, God's spirit takes God's word and he applies it into our life. Doesn't happen when you're reading magazines. Doesn't happen when you're reading blog posts. It happens when you're reading the Bible. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You're reading the Bible and all of a sudden you stop. You have to reread the verse again and you find yourself desperately looking for a highlighter. Because the Holy Spirit is taking the word of God. It's applying it to your heart. It doesn't happen with any other book, folks. It only happens with God's word applying, God, God's spirit applying God's word to our hearts. That's how we start to follow the spirit. Number three, follow the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit will set their minds on things of the spirit. When God's speaking to us through his book and applying God's Holy Spirit to our, our lives, what happens is you start to know things we need to do. Then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit will maybe start to prompt you. Maybe you need to make that phone call. Maybe you need to confess that sin to a person. Maybe you need to do this or need to do that. At that point, we're supposed to walk in step with the Spirit. Follow what God's Holy Spirit is whispering in our hearts to do. That's walking in step with the Spirit. And then it also warns us in Scripture, don't rebel against the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit, abstain from every form of evil, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we follow the Spirit? Become a Christian. The Holy Spirit comes into our life. We read the Word of God. God speaks to us through His Word. Then we obey what the Holy Spirit is telling us to do, not rebel against him. That's what walking in the Spirit is and how we can be most effective, fruitful and productive for God and his kingdom in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you don't leave it up to us to live in this world on our own strength, to try and figure out what you want us to do in this life based on our own direction. Thank you that you have sent your helper, the Holy Spirit, into our hearts, the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin, the Holy Spirit that gifts us, the Holy Spirit that helps us serve you, the Holy Spirit that comforts us. Thank you that you have not left us alone. Thank you especially that... Uh, you take your word, and as we read it, your Holy Spirit applies it and guides us and directs us. May we be people who successfully, every day, strive to walk according to the gentle words of the Holy Spirit that are whispered into our heart as we read your word. We ask, us, ask, ask you, Lord, to help us be faithful to you in following the Holy Spirit all the way to the end. We ask this in Christ's name. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. 
and may God continue to enrich your life.